Hello, you're listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. Good for you. This is the fifth episode of Michaelmas Term. Thanks for listening to another instalment in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. I'm Lewis DeFreitz, I'm a third year PhD student at Sydney Sussex College, and I'll be serving up another fascinating interview today. But first, a little bit of admin. As you might know, the University College Union, or UCU, has called for eight days of strike action beginning next Monday on the 25th of November. As it stands, that will mean that the final two seminars of this term will be cancelled, and as such there will be no podcasts after this until January. This is of course subject to change depending on negotiations, but if you don't see us in your feed for the next few weeks, then that's why. Today, I'm talking to Professor Robert A. Schneider, who is a Professor of History at Indiana University in Bloomington. Professor Schneider is primarily a historian of early modern France, with a focus on the formation of the centralised state in France between the 15th and 18th centuries. His work uses analysis of culture and social organisation to interrogate the shape and consequences of political centralisation. His first book, Public Life in Toulouse, 1463-1789, From Municipal Republic to Cosmopolitan City, was published by Cornell University Press, and his second book, The Ceremonial City, Toulouse Observed, 1738-1780, was published by Princeton University Press in 1995. He's published broadly on French history and literature in a variety of edited volumes and journals, including French Historical Studies and the Encyclopedia of the Enlightenment. His most recent book, Dignified Retreat, Writers and Intellectuals in the Age of Richelieu, was published by Oxford University Press in November of this year, so should be available wherever you find academic books. Professor Schneider also maintained a pretty rigorous side career as the editor of the American Historical Review between 2005 and 2016. For those unfamiliar, the AHR is perhaps the most prestigious and well-respected history journal published in the English language. Despite the name, the AHR is unrestricted in terms of both historical period and geographical purview, so it doesn't focus solely on American history. As well as overseeing the editorial and submission process of the journal, Professor Schneider wrote a number of editorials, uh, including one on film reviews for perspectives and history, and inducted a new regular feature in the form of the AHR Roundtable, writing the introduction to a 2011 roundtable on modernity, which also featured contributions from Dipesh Chakrabarti, Dorothy Ross and Richard Wolin. I definitely recommend giving that roundtable a read. Rob assures me that his current writing was not directly born out of his work as an HR editor, but you can certainly see a through line or two between some of the debates that have filled the pages of that journal in the past and the paper that we'll be discussing today. He is now working on a new book, tentatively titled The Return of Resentment, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of a Political Emotion, under contract with Chicago University Press. The paper we discussed in our interview and at the seminar on Monday is taken from this project and is titled the Rise and Fall of the Resentment Paradigm, circa 1935 to 1975. It's a fascinating paper, as you'll hopefully be able to hear from our conversation on Monday afternoon. Without further ado, here's me talking to Rob Schneider. Rob, thanks very much for joining me. Um, the paper you've presented is a historiographical paper that's rooted in historical change and context. What exactly is the resentment paradigm? When did it emerge and what were its major consequences? Well, it's the, the the paradigm itself is something in a, in a way that I've constructed uh, ex post facto. That is to say, no one was talking about the resentment paradigm uh, in the 30s, 40s, or 50s. But I think I, I I think I can prove that something that was paradigmatic emerged 
uh, in that period, in the sort of uh, mostly in the post-war, post-World War II uh, period, and that it was defined by a certain view of right-wing uh, movements in Europe and America, but it was based upon a view of uh, that was derived from modernization theory. Uh, it was a certain kind of post-war liberalism. It was invested in looking at society in terms of status groups as opposed to class. Uh, and it was, I think, most fundamentally rooted in a very uh, highly psychologizing view of history, even psychoanalytic, which was very much uh, the fashion at that time. And so psychologizing whole collectivities of people was, I think, fundamental. Thus, I think resentment is a psychological disposition, but it's rooted in, as I suggest, a various approaches that converge, uh, historical, psychological, sociological, that I, I think um, lead to the sense that it was a full-bodied paradigm mm. uh, that was therefore then applicable to other sorts of a phenomena, mostly of a sort of populist nature or right-wing nature. Mm-hmm. And who were the major <clears throat> practitioners of what you term this resentment paradigm? Yeah, I mean, the people I talk about are mostly um, some historians, mostly sociologists uh, who are uh, who sort of come of age in the post-war era. That is, they rise to prominence and uh, uh, secure academic positions in the 50s and 60s. And they're, they're well-known figures now, David uh, Daniel Bell, uh, Seymour Martin Lipset, Richard Hofstadter, Talca Parsons, who's an older sort of member and influence upon this group. There are other people like David Reisman, Nathan Glazer, Robert Merton, I think, is a a figure who's very important to them. So there are people who are at this point in the 60s or late 50s and 60s are pretty much based in New York, Columbia, Southern Harvard, some uh, maybe Lipset, I think, is at Berkeley at this time. But they, they know each other very well. Mm-hmm. They work together. Some of them even grew up together. So there's sort of interestingly a kind of cohesion that is both not just um, intellectual but but social. Right. Okay. And what what were the main social and political contexts besides knowing each other that you think influenced this approach? Well, again, I think it's a certain intellectual formation. They were really uh, deeply um, schooled and influenced by and in conversation with Freudianism. Marxism, sociology as embodied by Max Weber, but I think circulated through uh, Talcott Parsons. Uh, They were interested in, um, I think, looking at society as a whole, trying to come to sort of generalizable but well-grounded interpretations of certain kinds of social movements. But it was they weren't they weren't major theoreticians themselves, although. uh, But they were very much. influenced by and operating within a kind of Weberian, Freudian uh, framework, I think. And do you think the post-war context is particularly important? Absolutely. No, it's, it's absolutely essential. I mean, I think uh, that the post-war sense of American sort of uh, dominance, if you wish, uh, a certain kind of uh, consensus around uh, what Arthur Schlesinger called the vital center, a sort of liberal perspective on the world, uh, a, a, a holdover from the New Deal in terms of uh, uh, social policy, um, a sense, too, that uh, from the Nazi experience and fascism in Europe that um, certain kinds of protest movements were just illegitimate. Yeah. I mean, even if, they, even if one could assume that there was a social basis, the way they expressed themselves, their ideolo- ideology, were things that, are, that fell well outside the spectrum of what, of what was allowable socially or politically. 
Mm. And did did that express itself in their approach to the new left, the emergence of the new left? Well, sure, yeah, yeah, and I think that's yeah. what that's sort of uh, the new left doesn't figure in my paper, or uh, it will figure in the book in a way. Uh, but uh, they they were they were highly suspicious, and I think in some ways for good reason of of mass based movements mm. uh, of uh, social protests that happen outside the traditional institutions and context of 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 traditional politics of party politics they were uh, i think highly suspicious of sort of uh, notions of hysteria mm-hmm. or of fanaticism or extremism which which took a hold of the group so they looked upon the students especially since they emerged you know right within their confines i mean uh, uh, daniel bell is 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 living and working in columbia mm-hmm. in 1968 with the occupation there and he observes it and, and 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 comments on it and i think this is where they didn't they didn't expect it to come from the left they they they, they watched and they were very concerned about right-wing uh, expressions of extremism from McCarthyism, the John Birch Society, and other forms of sort of native conservative or right-wing movements. But they, yeah. they were appalled and shocked and um, highly critical of these student protests, especially since they didn't see any social basis for it, no, no material basis for it. Mm-hmm. And I suppose this is where that idea of resentment comes in. Well, I don't think it's so... I mean, they don't... It's interesting. I don't see them applying it to the student movement so much. Right. It's really... And, and I, I, you know, and I have to explore this further because uh, uh, I, what I'm interested in right now or what this paper deals with is their reaction to their observations of the two moments of right-wing... Uh, expression uh, in America, McCarthyism in the early part of the 50s, and then the kind of uh, the the persistence and growth of the John Birch Society, which which uh, feeds into the Goldwater campaign. And Goldwater, at this when this book is published, Goldwater is sort of emerging as a major figure on the right. Mm-hmm. So how did these interests and this approach? How did that shape? Uh, these people's historical writing in particular well again i mean i think richard hofstadter is the most is the best example and he's the one who i think is most is best known um, uh, among them and and certainly um the one who expresses most uh uh in a most articulate and persuasive fashion this idea of what he calls the paranoid style of american politics or the, uh, the defining populism in terms of its ideological um expressions that he saw as being unreasonable, even anti-Semitic in some respects, but otherwise sort of not legitimate. Uh, and and um, so he, he, he is, I think, the, the major figure in all this. But what I hope, what I want to show is that uh, while Hofstadter is someone who we seem to return to, and he's mm-hmm. resurfaced in recent years uh, for reasons that are interesting, um, he, he, he shared with these other figures uh, a common sort of perspective and that's why I think that there's something that's paradigmatic that is it's 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 uh, it's a outlook on society and the world which is shared collectively by a whole group of sociologists historians and other academics Hofstadter being maybe the most um, publicly well known it strikes me that uh, the work that you're talking about does tend to focus on societies as a whole and is interested in things like character and status Mm -hmm. do you think that um this interest and its impact on political and public life requires an interest in the nation as the primary object of study well uh i for for them it it was i mean there was this was no this wasn't a transnational moment i mean this was the 1950s and 60s and to do the nation in fact the whole nation which is how they were they were criticized for that kind of approach which mm-hmm. didn't acknowledge regions or classes yeah. or groups or uh, or race at all really um 
now, so their perspective was was the nation state. They were, however, quite open and influenced by European thinkers. I mean, in fact, the, there was Adorno and Horkheimer, who from the Frankfurt the Frankfurt School actually took up residence in Colombia. So mm. uh, we have the bearers of a certain kind of actually left wing, uh, as well as Freudian movement there in Colombia, and they're they're quite they're, they are in fact. Um, they, they see themselves indeed as um, infusing American intellectual thought with a level of theory that comes from Europe that had not been acknowledged yeah. or recognized in the United States. So in their sense, they, they had a very cosmopolitan view. Uh, the book I'm writing on resentment is, 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 is not restricted to America at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are chapters which are more based in the United States, but I see it, this is, a, I'm moving very casually in a way from Europe uh, to the United States and even elsewhere. Right. But I guess there, there does it does require on the part of these intellectuals to focus on, say, a nation rather than a smaller community like a region. Yeah, well, this is where and yeah, and this is where the 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 new social history that came out and was coming out in the '60s and '70s really challenged them, and especially yeah. somebody like Hofstadter, but not only him, who who. Uh, who did not look at social groups? Who didn't look at, uh, for the South, for example, you know, the, the character of populism is different in the South, different in the Midwest, different in the in the North, uh, the upper upper Midwest, and they weren't interested in regionalism um, mm. or 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 really in um, other sorts of discernments of class, ethnicity, race, gender. Had no absolutely no visibility, but I mean, especially region, which is something that, you know, Americans. Uh, uh, it's, you know, it seems obvious. You should, it's, it's so difficult, especially with a highly mobile and large society, to talk about America and the, yeah. especially American character. But that's again something that they felt very uh, comfortable positing that there were certain character types, mm-hmm. and they inherited this, I think, from Freud, from Eric Fromm, from Horkheimer and Adorno, and the authoritarian personality. The idea that they would be types, and again, I think yeah. that's actually part of the, the the paradigm. Right. And what would you say is lost? when these academics focus predominantly on things like character, status, anxieties, and performance? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really the, the big question, because in a sense, my, uh, what I hope to sort of highlight in the book is that, you know, if we're going to return to something like resentment, we're going to have to do it more than just casually. We're going to yeah. have to think about what resentment means. And I don't, I, I don't mean to say we should return to this paradigm, because I think in fundamental ways it was wrongheaded. But at least it was it it was full bodied it had a, a sort of grounding so we have to think about i mean we have to th- think about how we deal with emotions and how we yeah. deal with psychological psychological dispositions mm-hmm. which are extremely difficult to access to describe to reconstruct and nevertheless if we're going to talk about something as complex as resentment which is more than just anger or despair or disillusionment or hope or things like that that we routinely use resentment is a is has a lot of baggage that comes with yeah. it and so I think we have to, if we're going to use it seriously, we're going to have to think about, well, what, what, how do we encase it? How do we ground it? Mm-hmm. And that requires something on the order of, again, returning to an approach which is psych- psychological. Yeah. I hadn't made that connection, actually, between the paper and, I guess, the more emerging history of emotions in the last, like... Well, I think that's, that's where I feel a little more confident because, you know, when these people were writing in the 50s and 60s, there was no history of emotions. I mean, yeah. emotions were considered to be off, off the spectrum of what, what history dealt with. Uh, there, again, there was a psychological, I mean, it's mm-hmm. sort of paradoxical in a way. They were deeply and almost sometimes unthinkingly uh, uh, capable and, and ready to use psychologizing co- yeah. concepts. But emotions, no. And since, you know, for several years now, we've, we've uh, 
there's been a serious return to or rediscovery of emotions as something that's legitimate to to sort of think about resurrecting or reconstructing in history. It's still tricky. It's still very tricky. Yeah. Do you think the this focus on, say, resentment or status or, I guess, character, mm. does that um, does that require the brushing over of material like economic interests, for instance? Uh, no, no. no. And, I'm, and I'm, you know, my formation is as a social historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm deeply committed uh, in terms of what I think is meaningful and important in history to always, always acknowledging, returning to the social basis and the social context. Yeah. I don't think that can be, and I don't think that has priority necessarily, um, but I don't think we could just sort of casually dismiss this just because we're talking about people's disposition, their ideology, their emotions and the like. I mean, I think therefore we have to think about what groups we're talking about. That to me, it's, yeah. you know, what is the context? What social groups, who are they? Uh, what describes them in terms of their cohesion if they have a sense of, of a cohesive group? So I do think that um, that at least you you must uh, uh, acknowledge the the social context really. Uh, yeah. uh, whether you go more deeply into the economic, it depends what you're looking at really. Of course, yeah. And um, going back to this group of intellectuals that you discuss, um, to what extent does their focus on resentment, for instance, uh, to what extent does that explain their own rightward shift of many of these intellectuals in the 1960s? Well, I, I think, again, it's, it's a real suspicion of uh, any kind of extremism, yeah. um, uh, a, 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 any, a suspicion of a politics which is not rational, they, what they consider to be rational, even a suspicion of a politics that takes place largely in the streets or outside the conventional uh, patterns uh, and institutions, uh, a politics which is merely the politics of protest yeah. or identity as opposed to programs and policies, um, a politics maybe also of uh, of the of the uneducated too. I mean, I think as I mentioned in this paper, there's they are they are. I don't think they would even they would have not deny the fact that they were elitist yeah. in the sense that they were. Uh, they believe that policymakers, intellectuals, uh, certain kinds of states, people should be in control of things. And, and again, the uneducated or the ill-informed uh, are, are immediately a source of suspicion, especially since, I mean, in their day, what they were looking at was, you know, uh, the civil rights movement, where the, 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 the Southern sentiment against civil rights, they saw as populist. Right. They saw it as raw, naked, sort of potentially violent or often violent Populism, and that's that's what I thought uh, that sort of resonate them with their their experience or their understanding of what happened in Europe uh, between the wars and leading up to the war. That is, it was a it was a populist right wing movement in various countries that that distorted politics to the point where it, it uh, led to the Holocaust and World War Two. Yeah. So anything that smacked of that, of I think they that that is that I think is their starting point. I, I suppose that would suggest then that. Um, Rather than it being a kind of rightward shift on the part of these intellectuals, it's them reacting to the changing political circumstances around them. I think too. I mean, I, what what happened with a lot of them too is that they saw a certain kind of again. They were more comfortable with class politics than they were yeah. with sort of race politics, or other for, sorts of politics, which was very difficult for them to sort of uh, uh, square with a traditional sort of way in which politics are channeled in unions or other other interest groups. So that when, when things emerged in New York, like community control in Ocean Hill, Brownsville uh, in 67, I think it was, 66, 67, where you have the community 
which yeah. is basically a black community, opposed to the teachers. So you have this sense of community control versus the pro- professionals. They saw these sorts of things as, uh, while coming sort of from the left, or certainly from the civil rights movement, as really deleterious for the, the proper management of society. And, right. and uh, affirmative action, I think, bothered them a lot because it, uh, it seemed to create kind of quotas again, which many of them, most of them were actually Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that bothered them. I think you know the Great Society, as it as it developed in the course of the '60s, uh, moved in directions that, uh, while they were sort of New Deal liberals, they saw moving towards a kind of social management, and uh, that that they saw that they saw as, as essentially um, you know not progressive in the sense that they that they believed in. Yeah, the paper goes on to describe the rejection of the resentment paradigm in the mid-1970s onwards, and it essentially relays how the very tenets that it was built on that you described at the start of the interview were kind of dismantled by other historians. Mm-hmm. Could you briefly recap this? Well, yes, and I think it actually works out. Uh, to me, it sort of makes sense, uh, and I hope the paper makes sense, because I do see that in a rather systematic way. When you come to, for example, modernization theory, the idea that we're sort of, you know, that there can be a mode of development that is global, you know, happening within nations, but ultimately converging to a kind of, you know, political uh, political kind of system of democracy or liberalism, uh, um, uh, um, increasing secularization, capitalism, and the like, uh, that, the, that the world can be brought to that point, that that is discredited by, in yeah. various ways, academically, intellectually, but I think it's also discredited by the events themselves. Uh, uh, the developmental s- schemas really uh, fail, you know, mm-hmm. manifestly. But also the turn away from Freud and psychology and psychoanalysis, at least uh, in large part in the course of the 70s, that's something else. Um, I think also then too, the the so-called new left historians of, that emerged in the 70s, they uh, reject this default position which looks upon populism with great suspicion. Yeah. They see populism as being, uh, for example, forms of venerable notions, uh, representations of American republicanism as having rational policy uh, goals as not being sort of inchoate and and uh, suspect the way Hofstadter and others really ultimately looked upon them. So in those fundamental ways, I those think those three areas, modernization theory, psychology, and in terms of their, the, the, the rejection of a certain kind of liberalism, yeah. I think that's really, that really kicked the uh, foundation out under, from out under the paradigm, uh, the paradigm of resentment. Right. And towards the end of the paper, or I suppose right at the very end, you discussed the reemergence of resentment as a topic of study for historians, especially in the last half decade. And I know Bruce Shulman has very recently described a similar reemergence mm-hmm. of one of Richard Hofstadter's key contributions to historiography in the rise of what he calls neo-consensus history. And why do you think these concepts have a continuing allure to historians? Mm. And do you think there is a way to pursue these lines of inquiry without falling into the same traps that those yeah. who subscribe to? Well, I think there there is the trick, and yeah. and I don't I don't think actually it's continuing interest. I think it's the reemergence, right. the rediscovery of it, and it's sort of both interesting and maybe even troubling because again I, th- I think I said as I said earlier we seem now to sort of re um, this is this this concept has has reemerged, but we haven't thought it through very much at all. And I think yeah. somebody like Hofstadter is very casually used as a kind of label that we, that we sort of throw at 
these phenomena. Oh, Brexit. Why Brexit? Oh, it's resentment. Why Trump? Oh, it's resentment. And that then we and, and we feel as though we've explained things, and it hardly explains things because we don't know what resentment really means, how it works, where it comes from, how legitimate it is. And so I think it's it's been an excuse for. Uh, a certain lack of uh, analysis, which is very difficult. And whether we find resentful and uh, resentiment useful again depends upon, I think, how we rethink it, not just how we, not just resurrecting it, not just sort of throwing it at these phenomena, but rethinking it. And that's really what my book is about, or will hopefully be about. If I can sort of frame the question in those terms and get people to think about it, and maybe we'll want to retire it, or at least you know, uh, use it with a lot more caution, Yeah. then I feel as though um, sort of my job will have been done. Yeah, I suppose at the very least, yeah, being aware of this is a paradigm rather than just solution. Well, I mean, we might have to think about it paradigmatically, paradigmatically, but that means, you know, encasing it, grounding it, if you wish, whatever the metaphor is, in something more than just this label, Mm. you know. And that's a perfect point, I suppose, to ask how this paper fits into your broader project. Well, the project is uh, it's called the, uh, the Return of Resentment, the Rise and Fall and Rise Again of a Political Emotion. And the idea really is to do an intellectual history of resentment. And, of course, any, any treatment of resentment has to deal with Nietzsche because he is the looming figure in all this. And whether he's acknowledged or not, you can't really talk about resentment without thinking about Nietzsche and his influence in terms of defining it. But there's a history of it before Nietzsche. I mean, I'm going to go back. I mean, there's always a way which you can go back to Aristotle or whatever. And and that's not the point here. But I think it starts in the 18th century with uh, Bishop Joseph Butler, uh, who's a minor Anglican figure, but is actually important in talking about resentment in more positive terms. And then people like David Hume and Adam Smith actually deal with it. And then and then it will go through the 18th and 19th and then 20th centuries in various phases. Mm. Yeah, so is that still in the early stages? Well, I've got, uh, you know, I've got drafts of many chapters, and so the drafts will at some point become more finished. But uh, I think I've pretty much uh, outlined the book in terms of, 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 uh, of those drafts. Great. Uh, well, on that note, I suppose we can move on to some more general questions sure. to close out. Uh, what's a book or article that you've read in the last 12 months that have inspired or challenged your approach? Well, um, you know, the way you the way one reads when you're doing research is often just sort of, um, you know, like going from flower to flower. I mean, you read a part of a book, you read an article and you read it for what it can get, yeah. what it can. But but there are two books that uh, have helped me, uh, if not directly, indirectly think about intellectual history in the 20th century. One is by Yoav DiCaprio. Uh, called No Exit, and it's about uh, Sartre's influence in the Middle East uh, from the 30s up through really the Six-Day War, 1967, and how he was existentialism, uh, more generally, but also Sartre in particular, was very important for the sort of intellectual decolonizing process, uh, certainly had a play role then in the Arab-Israeli conflict, and this uh, DiCaprio uh, does a wonderful job in, in doing intellectual history, but really providing a rich context. And the other is by uh, Quinn Slobodian uh, called The Globalists, which really has opened my eyes to a much more sophisticated understanding of another concept, which I think we use very casually and unthinkingly, which is neoliberalism. Uh, and it sort of bothers me how it's just it's just evoked without any sense of really what it means it's it's uh, it's supposed to explain a lot but 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 it, as as of yet in many cases it it doesn't i mean people don't really have an understanding of it and he has helped us i think see this as as having a historicity uh, which is very interesting and again shines a light on a certain 
channel of uh, development uh, in the course of the 20th century. Mm. I think that Slobodian book especially, yeah, it shows the value of being precise with your language and your terminology yes. and how helpful that can be in yeah, yes. bearing out these developments. And yeah. um, what's the most interesting place you've ever been for research? Well, uh, for research, I mean, I did most of my research in France, uh, and I have to say still it was Toulouse, which, where I lived, and I wrote two books on Toulouse, so I'm very, very fond of the place. It was a second home, and so, I mean, really it was a certain kind of archives, uh, uh, municipal archives, probably because it was a room that was not big, much bigger than, well, a few, you know, it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't a big, big room. It was a rather intimate space, and you get all sorts of weird and interesting people coming in, reading, doing, looking at the archives, and, and the kind of spontaneous conversation that would occur uh, were really uh, interesting and, and enriching and stimulating and fun. Yeah. So I don't know if, it, it, yeah, interesting. It was eminently interesting almost the whole time I was there. Great. Uh, and final question, uh, Rob Schneider, what's your favorite album? <laughs> well, uh, uh, I have to say, well, I've been listening to Parsifal, a Wagner, and, I'm, and it's on a, it's on my uh uh, it's on my phone, and it's a. It was a performance in London, but years ago, and I can't remember the um, orchestra. I should. It's a German, I think, orchestra. But I guess my favorite uh, album is Blonde on Blonde, Dylan. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, it's one of the most lyrical and 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 evocative and and enormously sort of atmospheric yeah. of all his. I mean, he. I think he's brilliant, but especially, I think it's Blonde. If I'd have to pick one album, it might be Blonde on Blonde. Mm-hmm. Yes. That is a brilliant album. And just when you look back at the run of albums he was putting out in the late oh. 60s, and it was once a year or no, sometimes it, too many it, years. It's, yeah. it's sort of scary in a way, yeah. uh, his, his, not just his level of productivity, but the sheer excellence and inventiveness, each one after the other. Yeah. I happen to like John Wesley Harding too, uh, you yeah. know, which I, I think it's such a it's such a different, you know, when it came out, because I was of age, I was, mm-hmm. you know, just a teenager then. And um, that... You know, it sort of disappointed a lot of people because it was softer, it was more intimate in a way, but it was uh, countrified too in some respects. Yeah. But it was also the lyrics are beautiful and the melodies are gorgeous. Yeah. Well, what a note to leave it on. Rob Schneider, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast with Robert A. Schneider and me, Louis DeFreitz. We'll be back again soon with another interview from another presenter at our seminar. In the meantime, let your friends know about what we're doing here. Give us a rating and review wherever you do that kind of thing. Follow us on Twitter at Comericanist and get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Cheers.